1906. What thoughts come to mind when hearing the mention of that year? Yes, most people, particularly here on the West Coast, will say the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. It was the most devastating earthquake in California, in California's history, measuring 7.8 on the Richter scale, destroying 80% of the city of San Francisco, and taking 3,000 lives, the second largest death toll of any natural disaster in our country. It happened on April 18, 1906. But then there was another, even bigger earthquake that same year, less than three months earlier, on January 31, in 1906, in Esmeraldas, Ecuador, measuring 8.8 .8 on the Richter scale, the strongest earthquake ever recorded in Ecuador. Well, good morning. Welcome to this Pentecost Sunday at the Presbyterian Church right here in Eureka. And our message today is the power of the Holy Spirit and the Great Awakening. Well, last week, it was a year ago, that I started doing these sermons. Some right here in Eureka, but most of them in Blue Lake. And since the very beginning, I've been taping these sermons with my little cell phone and sending them out on a link to more than 120 followers on what some may call an internet ministry. Now, one of these listeners in Europe sent me an email after the last sermon a month ago. And he wrote, it is amazing at which speed you prepare and write these sermons. And I thought about that for a while. And I answered him, thank you very much. But I certainly cannot take any of the credit, as it is the Holy Spirit that brings the thoughts and the ideas and put things in my path while preparing for these sermons, particularly as Sundays draw near. Now here's an illustration. A month ago, on April 16th, a devastating earthquake measuring 7.8 on the Richter scale, hit Muisni, Ecuador, only 55 miles from Esmeraldas, the location of the 1906 earthquake. And on that same day, I met a nice young fellow. And like the main character in John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, this kid was named Christian. He formerly grew up in Eureka, but since had moved to Reading. And he only recently had accepted Christ. And this kid was full with the Spirit. And he was describing how he had been baptized that previous week in the Bethel Church in Reading. And he shared 
that on that particular weekend, church attendance in that was very low because many members of that congregation had left for the Azusa. Well, I honestly did not know what he meant with that. I knew of Azusa Pacific University in, in LA, but what Azusa was this kid talking about? So I asked him, and he described, he described this as a spirit-filled event in Southern California. Well, that wasn't enough for me. I couldn't help but find out more what this was all about. And as it turns out, the event was called Azusa Now, and it was held on April 9th, the weekend before, to commemorate and celebrate the 110-year anniversary of the Azusa Street Revival of 1906. Now, a celebration was held in the Los Angeles Coliseum, the same place where Billy Graham drew a record crowd of 134,000 people in 1963. So the question comes to mind, what is a revival? And a revival is defined as God pouring out himself on his people. So what exactly happened at that 1906 Azusa Street revival? William Seymour, an African-American minister from Louisiana, left, led a movement calling on the Holy Spirit in prayer meetings on 312 Azusa Street in Los Angeles, starting on April 16th, 1906. And this went on for days and nights. And church services were held on the first floor of this house. It was just a house. Where they had set up benches with simple planks on top of empty nail kegs. There was no elevated platform, as the ceiling was only eight feet high. And initially there was no pulpit. The worship at 312 Azusa Street was frequent and spontaneous, with services going on almost around the clock. And among those attracted to this revival were not only members of the Holiness Movement, it also included Baptists, Mennonites, Quakers, and Presbyterians. Two days. After the revival had started at Azusa Street, the ground started shaking as two earthquakes hit Los Angeles around noontime on April 18th, the same day as the San Francisco earthquake. In the book, The Ten Greatest Revivals Ever by Elmer Towns and Douglas Porter, they list this 1906 Azusa Street Revival in conjunction with the 1904 revival beginning in Wales, where over 100,000 people came to Christ. This book also describes the Great Awakening of 1727. And ironically, I learned about this revival just a few weeks ago. Driving back home after a long day, during the Mother's Day rush. 
And in the midst of this holiday, it's pretty common to start before 5 in the morning and while driving at home after 8.30 at night, I turned the dial to KVIP radio. And on was a program by Archie Sproul. And his program is called Legionnaire Ministries. And in that program, they were talking about Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and John Wesley as the driving forces spreading the message of Jesus Christ led by the Holy Spirit during the Great Awakening in England and in America. This book also lists the Second Great Awakening in 1780. And it lists the Hawaii and Jamaica one in the General Awakening in 1830. It talks about D.L. Moody, who was instrumental in the revival called the Layman's Revival in 1860. And it talks about the post-World War II revival, starting in the late 40s by Billy Graham. And according to the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association website, more than 3.2 million people have responded to the invitation at Billy Graham's crusades to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. As of 2008, the estimated lifetime audience, including radio and television broadcast, is stopped at 2.2 billion people. And then there was the baby boomer revival of the 60s. There's the Jesus people and the prairie revival. Well, this book also describes the pre-Reformation revival of the 1300s and the Reformation of 1517 with Martin Luther and John Calvin and Swingley and Knox. But the foundation of all these revivals took place in 32 AD on Pentecost. Now Pentecost as a major festival day did not originate with the Christian church. It was a Jewish festival commemorating the giving of the law and its occurrence 50 days after the Passover corresponding with the tradition that Moses received those Ten Commandments 50 days after the, after the Exodus. The word Pentecost is coming from Greek, from the Greek Pentecostal, or 50th day. Now let's go back 50 days earlier to that last night, that night in the upper room after the Last Supper and the washing of the feet, in which John's Gospel describes, describes a lengthy conversation where Jesus provides advice and inspiration to the disciples. And this brings us to John 16, 12 to 15, uh, which can be found in your pew Bible, um, let's see, Page 940. So if you would like to read along, feel free to do so. John 16, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. 
For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that I will take what is mine and declare it to you. A few months ago, a good friend gave me a book written by Charles Stanley called This Wonderful Spirit-Filled Life. And Stanley cites John 16:13, and he points out that the Holy Spirit will guide us. Jesus doesn't promise that the Spirit will control us or drive us. But he says it will guide us. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. He guides believers into the truth and according to what's true. The Holy Spirit helps believers distinguish what is true and what is not true. What is wise and what is foolish. The Holy Spirit is God's mouthpiece. Everything he communicates is directly from the Father. He will not speak on his own initiative. God has chosen to communicate to his children through the Holy Spirit. And when you think about that, it makes perfect sense. After all, where does the Holy Spirit reside? The Holy Spirit resides in us, in you and in me. Therefore, it is the perfect means for communicating God's will to believers. Now Jesus foretelling what is about to happen seven weeks later has his disciples very, very confused. They honestly have a hard time grasping all the things that Jesus is trying to tell before he is about to be imprisoned and crucified. The disciples have a hard time listening because they can't stand to hear the bad news of all the things to come. So Jesus said, I have much more to say, but at this point, you can't handle it. Does that sound familiar? Doesn't that describe us as well? We stop listening when we hear things we don't want to hear. But in the process, we miss the rest of the story. We miss the good news. We miss that when we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, He will provide. The Holy Spirit will come and will guide us. The truth is, the disciples didn't get it because they needed the Holy Spirit in order to understand the truth and what Jesus said. And so it is with us. We also need the help of the power of the Holy Spirit. Before the outpouring of the Spirit, people were confused and disillusioned. Jesus had ascended ten days earlier. And without the power of the Spirit, people were wandering in spiritual darkness. 
Well, this goes for conditions today. Revivals typically are preceded by periods of spiritual darkness and spiritual depravity. Now the question is, are we in the midst of one of these periods as we speak? The case can be made that Western Europe, even more so than America, is already dead. And I was talking to my brother about this just a few weeks ago. And he pointed me to Hans Boutillier, a Dutch researcher and director of the Verwaai Jonker Institute and professor at the University of Amsterdam. And he wrote a book called The Secular Experiment, in which he describes how God has been removed from Western European culture, how religion has disappeared from society. God has vanished in the hearts and minds of the majority of the Western European population. Boutoyer, in his book, analyzes the development of criminality and how a surveillance culture has become the almighty power in Western Europe. He asks, can the secular experiment last? And what does Western Europe stand for any longer? Well, the facts are indisputable. According to the Eurobarometer and a poll taken in 2010, only 28% of people in Denmark, Holland and France believe that there is a God. In Sweden, that number is even lower at 18%. Well, the statistics in America are still faring better, but declining nonetheless. According to the Pew Research Center, in 2014, 89% of Americans believe in God. But 63% believe in God with absolute certainty. And this is a decline from 71% just seven years earlier in 2007. Historically, revivals happen when worldly things start taking precedence over godly things. Typically, a community of believers prays that the Holy Spirit would intercede and God heals the people and the land. When folks can no longer hear or see or are unwilling to do so, when society is mesmerized to accept things as truth that are not, when political correctness supersedes common sense, when the way of the world displaces the will of God, when people have spiritually, spiritually fallen asleep, when we approach these conditions, then times are ripe for a revival. Now, this happened in the times of Isaiah. He foretold the revival that was to come with the coming of the Messiah and the eventual outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And in the Bible, it says in Isaiah 35, 
Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground a bubbling spring. Now let's fast forward to this past week. The Congressional Club in Washington, D.C. was founded in 1908 and is comprised of spouses of members of Congress and of Supreme Court justices and members of the Cabinet. This week they held their annual First Ladies Luncheon honoring Michelle Obama in the ballroom of the Washington Hilton. Well, this invitation-only event has been held for 104 years, raising money at $25,000 per table for charitable causes. Well, this year, American flower farmers donated the flowers for this event, which was unusual prior to that. We don't know where those flowers came from. More than likely, they came from Colombia or Ecuador or wherever. This time, there were American-grown flowers grown by American flower farmers. And I'm proud to tell you that these peach and, and white tulips happen to be all over those tables in that Washington Hilton. Well, in return for this in-kind donation, we were given a free table. And I was invited to join other flower farmers to attend this special occasion. Now, not having much time, I never seem to have much time, I took the red eye on Wednesday night to Washington. Arrived early in the morning, attended that luncheon that day, and flew right back home that night. And was back in my own bed that night. Well, I would not have wanted to miss this event, despite all the time pressures. The event was memorable, to say the least. This private event included the singing of the national anthem, an honor guard, a prayer before the food was served. And when the first lady was introduced, an elevated energy and liveliness filled the room. And for a moment, it made me think of that upper room in Jerusalem, when the Holy Spirit came down and the crowd was bewildered and amazed and perplexed. The First Lady gave an inspiring speech calling for a middle ground in a very polarized Washington and a plea to those in attendance to encourage their spouses for a more conciliatory approach to the issues facing our nation. Well, then after the meal, there was entertainment. 
and a number of Grammy award-winning musicians entered the stage, starting with Tasha Cobbs, who with her deep, booming, powerful voice starts singing. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. Break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. Well, at this point, the crowd went ballistic. It was like the Holy Spirit entered this room and gave this gospel singer from Georgia the incredible gift of expressing the power in the name of Jesus. The power to break every chain. And the chains are breaking. And believers are freed from whatever has held them down up to that point. It was so moving, it brought tears to my eyes. And as I was sitting in this crowd, it suddenly made that 28-hour round trip worth every minute. And here is a crowd of 1,500 singing along with this gospel song in the heart of our nation's capital. The power of the Holy Spirit brought this room to tears and joy. The same Spirit that came down at Azusa Street, the revival in 1906. The same Spirit of the Great Awakening. The Spirit that came down on the disciples on that Pentecost day, filling the room of 120. The Spirit that came upon that fisherman called Peter, who with the power of the Holy Spirit was emboldened and empowered to give the most touching, the most convincing and powerful sermon of his lifetime. And by the end of that first day, that day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. For a moment, consider where we are today. Are conditions ripe for another great awakening? For a new revival? In a moment we will sing, Open my eyes that I may see. And we ask for the Holy Spirit to come and dwell among the people and heal our souls. To open our eyes that we may see and lead us along that narrow road, that pathway to eternal life. Amen.